you're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor and I'm joined this week by Matt Handrahan and Brendan Sinclair. We're going to be talking about the biggest stories of the past week from the games industry, starting with Embracer Group's latest uh, acquisition spree, one in particular, and then the acquisition landscape in general. Um, so Embracer Group, the uh, Swedish company that owns THQ Nordic, Koch Media, uh, and countless, yeah, Sabre Interactive, countless other companies, they purchased uh, Aspire. Through Sabre, they purchased Aspire for $100 million. They merged with mobile publisher EasyBrain, uh, in a dollar, uh, sorry, in a deal worth six hundred forty million dollars, and the big one, the biggest that they have done to date, is they have joined uh, with Gearbox Entertainment. They have acquired Gearbox Entertainment in a deal worth one point three billion dollars. Um, Matt, you kind of you covered this one. You actually wrote the the story and flagged up a few interesting details. Like this one is big and a little bizarre for a couple of reasons right yeah well i i think they're they're kind of different to each other uh, at least actually i don't know as much about the aspire one uh, that's the one i didn't write about i know about easy brain and i know about gearbox i think what's notable about them tells us something a little bit at least about um embrace's strategy uh and what the hell it's doing, I suppose. Um, so basically, like, uh, Gearbox, the, the figure you'll see reported, and it's been reported by us as well, but you can't have the context, you can't have it without context because the context changes everything about it, is that the deal is worth $1.3 billion. Um, it's actually closer to one point four, But the reality is, Gearbox have been only been paid $360 million or thereabouts up front. And one over a billion dollars of it is in earnout, uh, is in performance bonuses, basically. To achieve the performance bonus, they'd have to earn. So basically, the the amount of money they, the amount of revenue they made in calendar twenty nineteen, if they made that every year for like the the performance review period is six years, six collected years, and I think they have to pass around a billion dollars in revenue in that period. They actually only made about one hundred and twenty million dollars in revenue in calendar twenty nineteen, so they'd have to perform significantly better than they have been doing, uh, sort of maybe double the performance. We don't we don't have enough uh, financials from Gearbox to actually know how they pre- performed in the whole six year period before 2019 but that's all we've got to go on but but needless to say when you look back at Gearbox's um, past Borderlands 3 is easily the biggest game it has released since Borderlands 2 I think that's fair to say right so they've released one like really really big game in a decade they've had pretty uneven performance since then so it would involve Gearbox really stepping up I mean I would say that that structure of that deal for so much of the value to be based on an earnout per performance clause but yet that figure to be presented as the value of the deal itself is somewhat unusual to me. And even within that 360 million, half of it is in B shares of, of Embracer. Um, looking at EasyBrain, that's a 650-ish million dollar deal. Every single dollar of that is in shares, is in equity. Um, not, one pe- not one dollar is paid in cash. And that again is is a little bit of an unusual deal, particularly for a company like Embracer, which is on a big acquisition, uh, well, has been on the acquisition path ever since it was founded as THQ Nordic all those years ago. Um, I think for me, it just raises questions of uh, over why, I suppose. I mean, why 
why is so much so much of the value of these deals deferred why is so much of it being given in a form which actually dilutes the value of embrace you know all of these b shares are newly created so every time it's issuing these things and if you look back over a lot of its deals all of these are being in in very significant part pretty much every transaction is creating more and more uh, owners of the whole company it's, it's diluting the value of the company itself um, well it's, it's also adding so, yeah. these new studios into the company so it is the issue is like are you getting a fair price for this yes I, and it's I, also, I think that's I think that's one of the the concerns here is that when they're they're bringing in all these these companies and their their strategy isn't one that's like they're not making an argument that every company they bring in is has going to lead to like tremendous synergies or efficiencies or anything like that. They're just like yeah, they're our company now but they're pretty much still independent and doing their own thing going as they were before. Yeah. So to to the really, point where, but to the really point where Gearbox is still going to be working with Take Two, right? Like so, even yeah. there, they're not even going to publish the next Borderlands game. That was still so. Take Two is still going to be taking a big chunk of any of that revenue. And I and I spoke with uh, Randy Pitchford and uh, the Gearbox founder and the um, Embracer head Lars Wingforce. Uh, the the day they announced the Gearbox deal, and and Lars was. Uh, I asked him like if the strategy was changing at all. And he was like, nope, we have like 1% uh, market share or something of the games industry right now. So there's a whole lot of uh, runway for us to keep doing this. And I talked about, um, you know, competition and whether or not he thinks the merger and acquisition activity is going to like jack up the price of the things he's targeting. He's like, uh, not really, because we're sort of a unique proposition people people aren't going with us because they get the most money in the deal like that's not their their main concern a lot of times and he mentioned easy brain uh and how it was he offered them hundreds of millions of dollars in cash and they were like no we want all all stock and i mean that suggests to me that like not only are they continuing to just acquire companies as fast as they can but they are they are going to continue shelling out uh shares of embracer in order to fund the acquisition and yeah that that is the big thing for me like you talk about red yeah. flags and that that just does not sound sustainable in any way so this yeah so this is the thing right like uh this is fundamentally what starbreeze did um this is what this is how starbreeze fell apart it's i mean on a much much smaller scale but Starbreeze went through a period of acquiring lots of things, and it did that not through because it had enough cash to do so. It did that through lines of credit, and it did that through issuing shares. And when the products that were supposed to result from all of these acquisitions didn't take off, the whole thing fell apart very, very quickly. I did some very, you know, like we're, I guess we kind of famously don't necessarily <laughs> look at these subjects as close as we could ahead of recording, but I did, did have a quick look through Embracer Group's financial reports. And in the six months, I think it was, let me check what the uh, period was, I think like April to September 2020, um, the Embracer Group, so like that's all of the companies in the Embracer Group, there's a lot of companies now, uh, made revenue of about 500 million US dollars. Uh, EBIT, um, so that's kind of 
earnings before interest, uh, interest and taxes uh, of about $52 million. And that's in six months. In that same six-month period, I think it spent about four, like $3 billion on acquisitions or like the equivalent value of $3 billion. I mean, a lot of this uh, is deferred because it's being given in form of shares. If you look in the, the investor relations um, pages on the website, you'll also see them opening uh, larger lines of credit with banks. Um, and yeah, I think red flag is the only way to see it, really, because it really does seem to be. And, and another wrinkle here, of course, is I don't know if I, either of you ever covered Embracer Group's financials, but there's always this thing where they talk about how many games they've got in development at Embracer Group, and it's like yeah. 80 or something. But they've got so many companies now that if each of them have about five products in various stages of development, you can kind of legitimately say that. But it really does suggest that. I don't know. I, I, I just wonder. It, it just looks like a house of cards to me. And you wonder how many of the cards have to fall for the whole thing to collapse. Because I, I, I again, I'm, I'm not like the, the I, I think after many, many years, I've got a feel for, for kind of good deals and bad deals. And as Brendan mentions, red flags, I just, I look at this and it doesn't really add up to me. Or at least it seems to be built on a fairly, it, it seems to be built on momentum. Um, and if that momentum kind of wavers or wobbles, who knows what happens, right? It's also interesting, like when you talk about Embracer's M&A strategy, it's not just one strategy at play. Obviously, Embracer as the group, as the overall has kind of final say. But going from my interview with THQ Nordic just before Christmas, um, they purchased, so back in November, Embracer Group across all its different subsidiaries bought, I think it was like, it was 12 studios and one service company, one one marketing agency. Like it was, it was like one of the biggest, if not the biggest wave of acquisitions the company has done to date. Um, I spoke to THQ Nordic about their part in it and they were talking about, they have their own M&A strategy. They are looking for, companies that fit with their portfolio specifically uh they 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 not teased but they kind of said they consider bringing in like another publishing kind of team um and they were talking about, but they they sound like they they very much have control as to which the which parts the THQ Nordic part you know acquire or merge with and then you know a lot of these uh the the recent ones have been done through saber gear uh, sorry not gearbox aspire has been done through saber in that wave of 13 acquisitions back in november i think at least four or five like a significant chunk of them were through saber i think that's driven by saber anecdotally the thq nordic guys um said they would they they you know they called the saber guys oh you're you're big you know something like your acquisition monsters because you keep buying everyone up like if you've got and then you obviously Koch Media and Deep Silver their publishing label they'll have their own priorities so when you've got like three or four big companies within a larger company all looking at different it just it I don't know if you can call it a strategy if there's like four or five different plans at work and all right there's this one parent group kind of giving the go-ahead but there doesn't. There's not one overall overarching vision on where this company is going. There are literally just pockets. Yeah. Of it, like. Well, I think that um, I think that there was in the early days. So, so obviously, Embrace Group used to be called THQ Nordic, and at first, it really did seem like THQ Nordic had a clear strategy. It did seem to be picking up sort of um, sort of older IPs in genres that have fallen out of favour. Maybe trying to resuscitate them a bit for the market. You know, I just finished writing up a piece, uh, an interview with a. 
German company called Mimi Me Games, which made Desperados 3 last year. Now, that's a THQ Nordic property, and they picked that up, right? So that, that seemed to be kind of what they were looking at in the early stages, but that has changed a lot now, and I think it really depends on what you would call a strategy. So, uh, it you know, it, it is a strategy to just buy lots and lots and lots of companies to inflate your value, then get rich. That's a strategy. I mean, look, I mean, how, how many studios has it bought, has Embrace bought even this year? 15, something? Like, it feels like every single quarter we're writing up three or four new uh, acquisition stories. And like you say, there doesn't seem to be all that much uniting. Now, I think there did used to be, I think Chris was, was pointing out that this was, uh, Chris who isn't actually on here to kind of make his point or defend his point or explain it, but, but, but he was saying that, it was like getting these smaller, kind of older IPs and regenerate, re- revivifying them, finding them a new place in the market. I think that definitely was the case. But acquisitions like Sabre Interactive, acquisitions like Gearbox do not fit with that picture at all. Um, to Brendan's point, do you get the best deal? I mean, I don't know. Is $1.3 billion the right amount for Gearbox? Company that made in one year, one calendar year, less than one hundred and twenty million dollars, or around one hundred and twenty million dollars. That is, that's at the very generous end of you know, uh, of of evaluation. That's sort of like thirteen x. That's pretty high. Um, and like when you look at what Gearbox has made, I mean, it's got Borderlands. I think that's probably where a lot of the value comes from. But if you go back, it's uh, yeah, Borderlands has got a bit of a checkered release history. And also, like if you look at one of the press releases, they list what Embrace Group owns. So I'll go through the list here. Saints Row, Goat Simulator, Dead Island, Darksiders, Metro, Kingdoms of Amalur, Time Splitters, Satisfactory, Wreckfest. I mean, I'm not saying like I really enjoy some of these games, but these aren't like big, big hits. You know what I mean? Like that's a lot of kind of, you know, mid-tier stuff and there's nothing wrong with that. But there's an awful lot of spending going on here for a portfolio that doesn't, to me, seem like it has an awful lot of potential for like really big, you know, multi, multi-million selling games. I mean, maybe that's not necessary, but, but I could feel like with this level of spending, some, some level of like high performance in his catalog has to be expected. Right. Yeah, absolutely. On, on their website alone, it says like they've got, they are the Embracer group owns over 200 IPs. And obviously that's because he was snapping up all those old ones, like you say, and like the ones you list off there. Yes. There are some impressive IPs in there. And like you say, like they're, there aren't many that are huge big sellers, but also there aren't many that that, that release regularly enough yeah. you know, to to warrant yeah you know, like to, to generate revenue. Like okay, yes, they own Saints yeah. Row. When was the last Saints Row? I have to say, I'm not exactly. a big I, I'm not a big follower of the series, but it's it's been a while. Well, I'm stunned um, we haven't own... got one since. I'm suddenly it's been so long since the Saints Row game was made. Given that uh, Deep Silver, I guess Deep Silver is the part of the company of the same show. It's not like it's got an awful lot yeah. of other IPs with that sort of commercial potential, you know. That I am surprised we haven't seen more from that. But but even so, yeah, that but that's the kind of the the pinnacle. Uh, that's one of yeah. like the IPs that you'd really say is like that's one of the most commercially viable ones. And even that is, you know, double A, I guess, probably. Yeah. Like I, I know, I, I know they're working on a, a new Saints Row somewhere. Like, like, but like you say, yeah, that, that's one of the bigger ones that they've got within the group, and it's a very infrequent release. They also they usually list things like Dead Island, and Dead Island Two still does not exist. Yeah. Um, you know, despite the fact that it was announced what <laughs> ridiculous number of years ago. Um, all the THQ Nordic ones they they 
so the old THQ ones they bought, they've done re-releases, but they have. I think Desperados Three is one of the very, very, very few where they've done a new release of an old THQ IP. Um, like it's it's daft. You you can't buy all these things up and then not release anything with them. Like it, when when they first started, when they were first snapping them up, it was like right, you're. It came across as like right, you're trying to get these, so you've got you've got the option to do something with these IP if you come up with something. But the the bigger and bigger the company grows, those IP surely have to start providing value, as you say, and they're not. None of them are. Like I, I, I can't even list off the top of my head like many games that I, I'm trying to think of. Embracer Group games that came out last year. I know there was the SpongeBob SquarePants remake, which is again a remake of a, of an old. Kind of early two thousands. I think uh, uh, co- coffee, I coffee think stain that... put out a couple of things. There was the Kingdoms of Amalur remake that came out last year. Yeah, again, another remake, not a, a continuation. Yeah. Like, and I'm not obviously remakes are, are you know decent business because some of them just happen to that nostalgia and take off. You know, the, yeah. the Crash Bandicoot is obviously the big but one. Then like, I think the, the more recent. So I mean, this is the part where I think my financial knowledge falls down. Right, like I can say that. You know, in, in a lot of ways, maybe this is, in, in a way, maybe this is the wrong way to look at it. Because I don't think even a huge company, I think Embracer Group has about 6,000 employees after the Gearbox deal. Like, it's a huge company. A huge company doesn't need to have, like, a AAA IP. It's perfectly fine for THQ Nordic to be profitable and Coffee Stone to be profitable and Sabre Interactive to be profitable and Deep Silver to be profitable. And then altogether... That adds up something healthy. What the part where my financial knowledge falls a little short, I think, is when it's trying to it's trying to pass that against the amount of shares being issued at the moment and the amount of credit that's being taken in. Because the company does not have necessarily does not have Embrace Group does not have the cash flow really to support this level of acquisition. I think I'm I'm pretty confident in saying that. So on some level, it is making these acquisitions based on some something that's that's going to have to come in the future. I just don't know how big that thing has to be and whether what the way business currently operates will be enough. Like whether it needs to do more now to kind of satisfy all of these bets it's making. Because this is, to be clear, this is, you know, kind of Starbreeze in the macro sense. And, and Starbreeze all fell down when, um, what's that game called? It was called The Raid, the World War II game. When that failed, and then The Walking Dead failed as well, It that was it, you know? The, the whole thing came down. Embracer Group is, is so much bigger, so potentially it doesn't actually uh, uh, cross over in exactly the same way. But it, I, I just... I, I kind of would like to hear someone really truly explain to me how all of the money, all the money and all the value that is being traded for these companies is going to be justified down the road in terms of financials. Because right now you look at the balance sheet, it doesn't, doesn't really seem to add up. And again, I'll just say, I actually really like a lot of the games that are under the Embrace Group. It's not really a criticism of the company on that way. It's just you know, even in a an, even in a period of great consolidation within the industry, Embracer Group stands out a mile, right? Like no one is, maybe keywords aside, but potentially keywords is the model here, right? Keywords buys lots and lots and lots of companies who all can contribute a little bit of money into the pot. That seems to be the model there, and it works for them. Um, I just don't know if it works for Embracer Group in the same way. Fun fact, then, uh, Embracer Group acquired 21 companies last year it has acquired at least three every year since 2017 just just to put into context how how big and how fast this company is growing but it's, it's definitely um, it, it must have acquired just, 10 
to 15 just in the last 12 months. I don't know. Like just looking back, I think well, like it was so, quite it, eight. It was, it was last 21, uh, 21 last yeah, year. Yeah. Um, oh, right, yeah. So 21 since February February last year. Um, well, no, I don't know what. Now, now with the three, it's like 24 since February last year. They announced they announced 13 in one batch. Yeah, November. That was the big batch in, we were talking about. November. Um, which was insane. Um, so, yeah, whether or not that slows down this year, uh, I don't know. But it's it's interesting seeing them grow, and I should at this point like kind of point out there's um there's a really interesting article that we've uh, published on on GameCentral.biz uh, by Simon Carlos. It was repurposed from his uh, his newsletter. It's about the different kind of it's an opinion piece on like the different strategies, the different ways that the different ways and the different motivations be- behind people growing so quickly. It's called Embrace Your Studio Acquisitions and the Growth Stock Bubble. I will link to it in the show notes. It's definitely, definitely worth a, worth a read. It's really interesting context on this subject. So the larger trend of mergers and acquisitions, because it seems like we've seen uh, a lot of them recently and the big ones like ZeniMax and Microsoft and uh, Codemasters and <laughs> Take-Two and EA. Um, this... This feels like a different, the embracer thing feels like a different trend to me. Mm. Uh, it's it's embracer and uh, EG7 is another one. Like their acquisition targets are not not what I think of as for the most part as like traditional acquisition targets. Is like wow, that's that's a. a a studio that we want to invest in because we think that there is, you know, huge future for them. Uh, it's it seems almost like ten cents uh, stance, you know, or ten cents strategy where they they find an existing company, they put they they invest in it or you know acquire it, usually just investment in in ten cents case, and then they let it do its thing. And with ten cent. Uh, I think it works really well because most of the companies that they target and invest in, they are like, they're already churning along profitably and consistently. And it's like they have, when Tencent invests in a studio, I'm usually like, yes, that studio has a, has a solid track record. They've got a uh, franchise or a, even a single product that is just really, you know, clicking along right now, hit its stride. And and Embracer is like, I, I I don't get it. Some of these studios are are cool and promising, and a lot of them are studios that I write about the closure of, and I have to read up on them and figure out what it was that they were doing as I write a story about the studio's failure. And that seems that seems like such a different ballpark from what like Microsoft. With, with ZeniMax is doing or, or EA and Take-Two fighting over Codemasters. Like, I, I don't think that an increased uh, interest in mergers and acquisitions on that high-end scale of, of premium developers or whatever has much to do with what we've seen going on in recent years with companies like Embracer and EG7. No, no, I agree with that. 
the, it's still interesting what's happening on that that kind of high end like the EA Codemasters one like the so that's now fully approved um, by shareholders I believe that's going to be sanctioned in court the week that this actually comes out I think um, 16th of February no the following week so the, the, we're less than two weeks away from, from you know Codemasters officially becoming part of EA and that I'm surprised that that one's going through. Like in the in the last regulatory notice that Codemasters put out, um, they mentioned that the kind of competition regulators in Germany and Austria, um, in, you know, particularly those those uh, territories, have approved this deal. So, like, nope, there's no monopoly here to worry about. Um, which you know, I, I presume I presume that that means that they, these are going through various different checks. Um, Microsoft, as you know, on slight tangent, Microsoft has has now had to file with uh, the EU, the European Commission, to get its um, its acquisition of ZeniMax Media Pass to, to confirm, yeah, like to approve, like, like this is not a monopoly forming. But the EA Codemasters one, that is a monopoly on racing games, surely. Like that, I know there are other smaller, you know, players out there. Well, you've got Forza, Gran Turismo. Yeah, that's true. Like platform holders have things, Mario Kart. Yep, <laughs> I, I, I guess it, it it is certainly it makes EA you know the go to uh, place for for certain kinds of racing games. But yeah, um, I mean, given what what EA has been allowed to have with you know football, yeah, and yeah, yeah. other sports over the years, like this does not seem to be fundamentally different. I also don't know exactly me. whether you know emerge uh, monopoly can be would be a judge to be in place on a specific genre within video games i think no i think it'd be a kind of a bigger picture thing like is this one entity too too powerful like within the whole sphere of games i imagine that mike the microsoft having go having to do that with bethesda is more or less a formality that there's not actually any real risk you know there of going through because there's just too many other companies at play for, for that to be a monopoly the genre thing, like EA was, they did have to um, agree to not sign exclusivity deals with the NCAA for a period of five years, I think. Uh, and that's that's lapsed now, and they're making NCAA games again. Um, but, like, that, that is, as weird as it sounds to me, like, genre exclusivity apparently is it rises to the level of a uh, antitrust concern yeah but but then i don't know i don't want to go too far on this rabbit hole necessarily because i don't feel qualified to talk about it but but you know the monopolies and mergers commission breaks up companies for being too powerful then shouldn't fifa be broken up because it isn't like anyone has a chance of making a football game that can compete against it. It's not just acquisitions that the monopolies and mergers control, right? It's like when something has kind of organically grown that large. And, and, and so I feel like the genre thing must have its limits to a degree because there are there are genres that are dominated by a single game and there's no there's no threat of that there, you know? No, I don't I don't wanna like, you know, alarm you here, Matt, but um laws and rules are applied inconsistently <laughs> it's true that is very true yes. um like i i remember a time when when uh microsoft was prevented from shipping windows with like internet explorer already as the the default kind of thing right and now if you have a windows computer you cannot get the microsoft edge icon off of your taskbar or, or the the, the pop-up thing when you here, I'll try and do it right now. Uh, da, da, da. Oh my gosh, you can do it. 
<laughs> Regardless, it is there. I know it is there. This computer definitely has Microsoft Edge on it, even if I never yeah. use it. Well, I think on that point, actually, um, the other thing that happened this week that got me thinking about uh, you know consolidation was Sega's restructuring. Um, so Sega has... Sega's been having a bit of a rough time of it, not because of video games, but because of the kind of the the, um, the parts of its business. A lot of Sega relies on uh, physical locations to be open. It has pachinko, a pachinko machines business. It has uh, sort of gaming machines, like in the, the sort of the gambling type sense business. It owns amusement arcades. It owns resorts and hotels and this kind of stuff. And uh, at the start of this week, or the end of last week, we reported on the start of this week, announced a plan to effectively what previously were divisions of Sega Sammy are now going to function as separate companies with separate uh, portions of shares. Um, so they're going to have Sammy Corporation and then some riff on Sega Corporation. I think it's the Sega Business Corporation or something. So you're going to have all of the amusement stuff, Pachinko and all of that, in one one part like as a separate business entity they're all both still going to be under the. They're both going to be wholly owned subsidiaries of, of Sega Sammy still, but they're just not going to be feeding into the same balance sheet anymore. Um, but the weird thing was, I and again, this is one thing where like I'm, I'm not quite sure exactly how to read it. But when you look at the way that the shares have been apportioned out, um, I think the Sammy Corporation, which is where all of the struggling parts of the business are, has about you know something like ninety million shares. Um, the uh, the the video games part of the business has about one thousand one hundred shares, um, and that has taught, started a lot of people talking about whether this quite unusually um, lopsided structure of these two companies is, you know, f- suggesting that maybe a sale or, or it's about making one or the other part easier or more difficult to sell um, and, it, and it got a lot of people talking about is it a possibility that that you know Sega's entire video game business gets bought up by somebody um, and that maybe this is the reason why they did that is is to kind of make that a little bit easier and, and that there you know that that is something I think where even more so than Bethesda would have to be looked at quite quite, quite closely because Bethesda is a big company but, but Sega is you know, in terms of purely pure IP, I think just as big and just as just as broad. Um, yeah, it's Microsoft. Microsoft's going to buy yeah, Sega. Well, you heard the, it here uh, first. That's the rumor, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> that is interesting. Well, it would, one other thing I'd say well, on the well, I was going to say it would, it would make a lot of sense. You know, Microsoft it would. Really would would really benefit from having some some IP that has traction in Japan. Buying Sega would get you Atlas, and it would get you the Yakuza team, and you get all that. Uh, the thing that's really characterised Sega outside of Japan is its growing strength in PC, and obviously Game Pass is also on PC. And I think Microsoft that's the part of Game Pass that has had less love. Like that's kind of lagged behind a little bit. I think only Gears Tactics, I guess Flight Simulator as well. These these are you know these have emerged in the last sort of six months or so, and they've really kind of added value there. And if it bought Sega, it would get you know. Uh, Sports Interactive, and it would get um, other PC developers' whose names I can't really remember at the moment. You get a lot, right? You get you get creative create assembly and other triple A creative assembly. Like if you yeah, if, if you put if you yeah. put the entire Total War collection on Game Pass PC, that is going to turn a few PC gamers' heads. Exactly, and you get Sonic, which you know I guess 
you'd have to be someone other than me to see the value in that. But uh, that's I'm, I'm sure there, there's some value in having Sonic on board too. But like it actually makes like loads of sense. It ticks a bunch of boxes, at least as many as Bethesda does. I would say. I mean, Bethesda has some really big boxes that it can tick because it's got those that level of IP, but it's also got a bunch of smaller stuff. Whereas Sega is just a very diverse games business, right? And and Microsoft's whole business plan really is around trying to offer. Um, something a little bit of something to everybody so that it can grow game pass like that so it's it's not it's what it's a fun one to think about I, I don't know if it can happen because I, I really have no idea how much that transaction would cost and it, it might be difficult to pull off but all I can say is all the video games fall under a part of Sega's business structure now that only has like 1100 shares um, in it so that's a not very many people will you know there's not very many people to convince to sell whereas the other part of the business would have you know a lot more people to convince so who knows whatever the cost would be it would be worth it just to make the xbox series s and x backwards compatible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <that's cool. laughs> yeah i mean you know i i yeah i would love it get some bass fishing on uh, on, on game pass dust off my copy of power stone <laughs> Then the weekend is set. Other big news of the week is that Google has closed Stadia Games and Entertainment, its internally developed studio for making games for its cloud streaming service. And this feels like a fairly hefty nail in the coffin that is just sitting there waiting for uh you know a trivial movie reference but the the undertaker that just keeps on measuring up uh, michael j fox during back to the future part three and you just know that there's a coffin waiting for him ready for when the duel is over it feels like there's one of those ready for stadia there's someone is already like yeah, they're varnishing the wood is there and this this is this this is just a big a big nail in the coffin i it's hard to see how you convince people to really push and and how you really sell a a cloud streaming service that you've positioned as a platform without any kind of exclusive games and particularly without exclusive games that demonstrate the full power of this service like i remember being in the room when phil harrison uh, harrison was explaining what stadia was like back at gdc a couple of years back um and off the top of my head, I don't remember the actual feature, but some of the stuff he was saying, like that, that Stadia could do, because the sheer power of cloud processing that you can't do on a console, you can't do on a PC. It, you know, it's it's all these big stacks of the different features that they would be able to have, and the hint was that that Stadia Games and Entertainment were going to demonstrate that, and now they're not because less than two years later they are shut down and they're pushing more towards a kind of a third party service kind of model. Uh, gentlemen, your your thoughts on 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 the 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 woes, the many woes of Stadia. Well, it was I think well, yeah, I mean I I don't think you could have found someone who would take a bet on Stadia on you know, Stadia not being significantly stripped back fairly in fairly short order even right after it was announced i mean i'm I'm sure if we go back and find the podcast episode from that time we'd all be saying you know it, it seems quite unlikely that google has the staying power for this i mean rob rob Farhi's column today i think one of this one of the, uh, the second paragraph was um 
yeah, the overriding sentiment in most commentary I've read or heard about this is, well, duh, of course Google did this. Google was always going to do this. It was never a question of when, it was a question of if. Uh, sorry, the other way around, you know, it wasn't a question of if, it was a question of when. Um, but, you know, that, that, I just don't think any of us were surprised. You know, I, well, I was surprised at how quickly it happens. I, within two years, yeah, that's what just the, the amount of time it takes to, to make a game, like, it's not like they didn't have someone like Phil Harrison at the helm who, who can say it takes this long to make a game. You know, we need this long. Uh, I'd, I'd be really interested to know what were the discussions that led to the decision? What were the metrics by which this stuff was being judged? I mean, I think what you can say is that given, given the fact that they only even tried to start making games after the platform had been unveiled, you could say that how integral was that to what Google really wanted out of this in the first place? Um, you know, if, if, if you wanted first-party games to be a big part of what Stadia was, then you would have been making them before the platform was even known. That, that's the only thing I would say, is that maybe this was something that they tried, but they never really thought was actually essential mm. to what they were doing. That's kind of a bit balmy to me, because I feel like you probably need games that prove... You know, the, the draw people to stay, that's just the way the games business works. It's the way it always has. But Yeah, there's the, it's it actually angers me that uh, they only started with Stadia Games and Entertainment as like the development arm of it in, uh, I guess, early 2019, because they announced it with the Stadia in March and they introduced Jade Raymond as their new hire to lead it up. Uh, and a triple a game you know the the kind of like original stadia content that they were looking for content that would take advantage of streaming to not just give you a console experience wherever but to like do things that standard consoles can't do um i guess sort of that improbable uh vision of streaming games mm. uh you can't expect to be putting that together in in less than you know three or four years or longer since you're trying to do something completely new on a triple a scale and to to staff up those studios uh, to to bring all those people into the organization and to not even give them a reasonable window of time to produce something to pull the plug on them less than two years later mm. Like that is, th that is infuriating to me because they, they, there was a lot of talent in, in that was attracted to the, these projects and these studios beyond just the names that we know. And, and now those people are like, well, I've got this, you know, two year black hole on my, on my resume and I did a lot of work then and none of it will ever see the light of day and it was all for nothing. And, you know, as, as a developer with a career, you've only got so many, so many games that you can make when each game can take four or five years and you've just kind of thrown away a couple of years on that. And I'm sure they paid well, which is, which is great, but, um, it's like, it bothers me when you have talented developers and they, and and things fall apart, um, not just for the usual assortment of reasons that video games fall apart and development doesn't work out. 
when when it falls apart because the person with the you know the purse strings in in hand decided like hey yeah let's do this oh no i changed my mind <laughs> sorry yeah. well, that's the thing because the way it looks is it looks like when this decision was made let's make games whoever did it never really had any strong belief that they even wanted to because they didn't even wait to see pretty much a single product to see how it did or anything like so there can't have been any real belief behind it in the first instance which is why i'm really interested to know exactly what happened there because you'd have to think that someone as experienced as phil harrison is going to be fighting for games being made that take unique advantage of what cloud streaming can do because he knows he's launched consoles before he knows how what why he knows why gamers are attracted to a new platform and it's because it offers them something that they can't get elsewhere and that's in the form of a video game or some sort of game-like experience so obviously someone like phil harrison's going to be pulling for it obviously people like jade raymond are there to do it but whoever fundamentally gave the green light to all of that stuff can't have believed in it at all because what by what metric did this fail? I don't understand. I mean, unless it's the fact that the Stadia platform itself has had such a slow uptake that Google just needed to cut back on some costs associated with the program and it can't cut the technology so it can cut what it sees as an expendable part. So maybe it's the fact that Stadia itself just isn't doing well enough for Google to, to, to justify continuing with the development effort. But, I mean, but that's extra disappointing because it might only yeah. have been another year before we started to see some products. And like, I, I just don't feel like that's, that just doesn't seem like a very smart time to, to kind of back away from it entirely. Yeah, their, their deprioritization of it's sort of been telegraphed, uh, I, I suppose, when you look at like, they released a new uh, Chromecast. Like, here's our next generation Chromecast. And it does not support Stadia <laughs> out of the box. Like, there's a workaround that you can do. And we're going to, months down the road is when we're going to, like, unveil the, you know, official support for Stadia in there. And, like, that's that's pretty telling that, like, there just wasn't a whole lot of institutional will uh, behind the the Stadia project. And that's that's a shame. But now that they are, so they've, they've killed the, the um, internal game development, but they're going to continue with like Stadia uh, as, as sort of a back-end service, I, I, I guess. And, and that actually, um, just like from hearing about uh, Bungie doing, once we, once we all moved to remote work, uh, they had the problem of like, well, we've got new builds that we need to get to everyone. And that's just a huge amount of data to keep sending back and forth. And then they, they set up uh, their testing to go through Stadia. And that seems like a perfectly uh, useful, relevant, and viable uh, way for, for Google to continue, you know, running that business. Is it is it large enough to actually... Uh, I don't think it's going to like justify the amount of R and D spend that they put into this or the entire stadia project, but like that, that can be a business going forward that that sort of offering. But like, I, I don't see how at this point stadia itself um, continues in, in any like meaningful way, even the subscription side of it with, you know, here's just third party games 
not our not our own because they've like Google's already clearly signaled like we do not have an interest in this. Well, so Rob, Rob, uh, Rob, in his piece, I think he he made a good point, um, which is, is one that's pretty obvious, you know, when when you do hear it. But uh, but I think it's quite incisive. Is that basically Google is is basically a business to business company, but it, it infrequently gets confused that it's also a business to consumer company, and that results in alliances with products or services that are half heartedly marketed to ordinary folk before being abandoned down the line. And the core of what's just happened to Stadia is that Google had another daydream about being a business-to-consumer enterprise, imagining itself not only as a service provider for consumers, but even a content creator. Reality reasserted itself, and the company has pivoted back to familiar territory. And that is, as you say, Brendan, that the logical endpoint of Stadia's transition is to be a business-to-business product, a white-label game streaming service that publishers can use to power their own streaming products. And I think that's that's right. Like the, the name Stadia, if it if it persists, will just be something that, you know, it would be like, uh, I know when you, when you open it, when you power up a game, you see all kinds of logos for different technologies that do physics and things like that. Maybe it will just be like that, you know, that it would just be one more tiny piece of kind of like middleware effectively that allows, you know, Bungie to kind of work remotely or, or allows, you know, um, a, a AAA game to kind of be streamed to, to like, like Bethesda can use to stream one of its more powerful games to underpowered hardware or something like that, but it's not going to be a service or platform. And the fact that it was ever made to seem like it could be a service or platform for consumers is just, you know, pure Silicon Valley hubris. We've seen it many times before. It's a shame because I, I actually have access to Stadia and the few times I've used it, well, I mean, that speaks volumes the few times I've used it. But the few times I've used it, it has been promising. Like, it's it's been... It has worked the way that they pitched it, the way I expected. Like, I was able to get through the first five to ten hours of Red Dead Redemption 2 on my TV, loading up within seconds, um, without having to worry about lag or massive installs. When I eventually then got it on Game Pass, it took forever to load into. When Cyberpunk came out, I was lucky enough to have access to that. Um, I was playing through the first two origin missions on uh, on my phone in bed on you know with a controller like and, and it, it played really smoothly it looked it looked decent enough particularly like on the, on a phone like i could i could you can see how there is there is a there is potential for a consumer offering of this form this was just not the way to do it, or currently is not the way to do it. Selling individual games for full price um limiting limiting it to certain devices like it's it's just not quite the way the way that it should have been done like it, 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 it's kind of too early the technology i think is there and the technology shows promise but the 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 business model and, and put it in a, as a platform no not so much yet brendan your point about um they the, you know they're going b2b now and they're, they're gonna be this this thing that is is used by companies in the industry chris was saying earlier this week that on that, they're a little too late in certain air in, in certain aspects of what that that model you know, the opportunities that model opens because the big ones um, Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo all have their own cloud providers. They already have their own cloud providers, and most people running a cloud service will have a cloud provider. Or you know, already there are a number of kind of smaller cloud services out there. Um, so, not saying that the market's co- obviously the market's not cornered yet. Cloud gaming hasn't taken off, but 
some fairly significant windows of opportunity have been closed because you know Nintendo's already using whatever company is that that powers things like Hitman 3 and Control on Switch. Um, Sony has PlayStation now because obviously it owns Gaikai. Xbox has its xCloud because it's got its own internal stuff. Like the avenue you would use, the big public avenues you would use to show off your, your cloud technology are not so much closed as they are crowded. There's still the option, I think, for some of the original pitches of Stadia um, where it would integrate into YouTube. So you'd see an influencer playing a game, click a button, start it up in your browser, things like that. I, I, I think there's still possibly some potential um, in those, but it's it still just seems at this point, um, like I, I, I wonder who would, again, who would invest in this after having seen Google just already cut and run on it i'm actually looking forward to your 10 years ago column when we get to the point where uh, stadia has been unveiled the i actually looked back at our coverage from uh, the stadia unveiling and it's not as bad as you would think i watched a little bit of the gdc stadia uh stage show where they talked about it and there wasn't there wasn't so much of the like we are in this for keeps we will be here forever we are committed so thoroughly there there wasn't that kind of bluster that you so often see with these kind of um big flops but um they did in the in the gdc uh i guess in the moscone center like in the lobby while people were waiting to get in there for the stadium announcement they did have a uh like a little video game history exhibit where yeah. they showed like the dreamcast and the power glove and things that were not commercial successes. <laughs> and then they had a line of these and then like a box at the other one at the end of it that was empty for whatever they're announcing today. And that seemed a little on the nose. See, that's, that's the thing. You say that there wasn't, I mean, yes, hilarious. That is on the nose. But that, but the thing I take away from that is like, yeah, I remember. I remember seeing that display. And because it, it was on the corner of the Moscone Center, like outside for the first few days. And like the last box was empty. And then like the morning after the um, announcement, like there was a just a Stadia controller inside it. But it really... Yes, it's hilarious that they put in a few things that are uh, uh, commercially flopped, but but they the implication of that exhibit, the message they were trying to send it, look, here are all the biggest innovations. Here are devices that have etched their way into history. Like, as much as the Dreamcast flopped, it is historically a significant console. So good. And you know, it continues to be a significant console for you, Brendan. Um, like, and they, 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 they were putting themselves on a literal pedestal next to these devices. And what's come of it? And I know it's only two years. It's only two years. But when it's only two years and they are already abandoning their, their internal efforts to, to push the boundaries of what this service could have been you can't help but feel that this is the beginning of the end, that this is the beginning of the decline, this is the beginning of the end of interest. If, if even Google is losing interest in its own service, what chance do, consu- you know, do consumers and other publishers have of maintaining interest in it? What, one more thing that I found looking back at old Stadia coverage, uh, the month before it launched, we interviewed Jade Raymond, 
And uh, she invoked yet another commercial flop in doing it, saying, uh, a fully physics-simulated game is one of the holy grails of game creation since Jurassic Park <laughs> Trespasser was being imagined 20-something years ago. And now we finally have a platform where we'll be able to deliver some of those experiences. <sighs> I'm sorry, yeah. Jade. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Well, I don't think anyone on this podcast is giving Stadia a snowball's chance in hell of of ever being like a valid, viable, uh, viable and profitable consumer service. But, you know, it, it, it remains to be seen whether Google can deliver on some of those aspects of it. Because like, you know, as Brendan pointed out, that idea of integrating with YouTube and being able to go from a promotional, you know, from a promotional trailer straight into a demo seamlessly, that is not something you need to sell a consumer on. That doesn't require any buy-in from a consumer. That just requires a consumer to do what consumers already do, which is watch trailers on YouTube. And that would just be a deal between Google and the publishers. And I actually, there is really, there is no reason. If that can happen, publishers will want it and consumers will like it. But like that doesn't require Google to get people to sign up to this. It doesn't require Google to, you know, to make games that, that people actually want to buy. They just require some some enterprise type deals between massive, massive companies that ultimately yield some benefit. I think even at the time, that seemed like one of the better ways to do it. And one thing that Rob did say in his piece that, that kind of made me think as well, because uh, what, what his point was actually, the, the whole point of the piece is that uh, for anyone that believes that streaming represents the future of the medium, the fact that that the only company that was showing any signs of really wanting to use streaming technology to make new kinds of game experiences, the fact that that's gone, because Microsoft and Sony aren't really looking at streaming, they're looking at streaming as a way to deliver existing kinds of games, which obviously it still can be, and that's still good, and I like, you know, that subscription service idea anyway, but, but this was... Google's promise was we'll make games that you can only do with streaming. The fact that they've gone means that it's really quite unlikely we'll see anything that does that anytime soon. Um, but actually what he said was that perhaps the problem was that actually was that the visions being creative were too pedestrian, that the, arch- the, 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 the shift that streaming promises doesn't actually really allow for experiences that, that people can have faith in or, or that could be good consumer products. But I think that's giving Google a lot of credit there. Uh, it does feel much more likely that um, just whoever arbitrarily opened the purse arbitrarily closed it again. And that's all that happened. Yeah, I, I will say, though, I, I am a uh, skeptic, I guess, as to how much uh, streaming really adds to games. Like, I, I, I understand that, like, maybe with cloud streaming, maybe we can have you know, a thousand person Fortnite instead of a hundred person or whatever. But I don't see how that's necessarily any more fun. It's considerably less so in my point of view. (laughs) A thousand person Fortnite is basically going to make me feel even worse about my Fortnite ability than I already do. (laughs) It's, it's always been one of those, um, like whenever I hear a company say, we can't wait to see what developers do when they get their hands on this technology. That always tells me they don't they don't know what the application <laughs> yeah, of the technology is, and they're looking for ideas. And uh, cloud streaming, I, I feel like when you're trying to do something more than just replicate the console or PC experience, it's it's a big. We can't wait to see what developers are going to do with this kind of moment for me. 
That is all the time we have for this week. We're going to be back next week with your usual new show. In the meantime, please do go back and listen to previous episodes of the podcast, both the topical discussions, but also our Game Developers Playlist series and the five games of. Uh, a reminder that the most recent ones are five games of Jesper Kidd. We spoke to the composer about his work on Hitman, various Assassin's Creeds, uh, and and Borderlands which we've discussed today and the latest game developers play this was on Evil Within 2 you can find all previous episodes on the podcasting platform of your choice and you can find more news insight and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz Music